Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Today we are reading Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which was written by Harry Houdini and ghostwritten by H.P. Lovecraft. And now, on with our story time. Chapter 1 Mystery Attracts Mystery Ever since the wide appearance of my name as a performer of unexplained feats, I have encountered strange narratives and events which my calling has led people to link with my interests and activities. Some of these have been trivial and irrelevant, some deeply dramatic and absorbing, some productive of weird and perilous experiences and some involving me in extensive scientific and historical research. Many of these matters I have told and shall continue to tell very freely, but there is one of which I speak with great reluctance, and which I am now relating only after a session of growing persuasion from the publishers of this magazine, because they have heard vague rumors of it from other members of my family. The hitherto guarded subject pertains to my non-professional visit to Egypt fourteen years ago, and has been avoided by me for several reasons. For one thing, I am adverse to exploiting certain unmistakably actual facts and conditions, obviously unknown to the myriad tourists who throng about the pyramids and apparently secreted with much diligence by the authorities at Cairo, who cannot be wholly ignorant of them. For another thing, I dislike to recount an incident in which my own fantastic imagination must have played so great a part. What I saw, or thought I saw, certainly did not take place but is rather to be viewed as a result of my then recent readings in Egyptology and of the speculations anent to this theme which my environment naturally prompted. These imaginative stimuli, magnified by the excitement of an actual event terrible enough in itself, undoubtedly gave rise to the culminating horror of that grotesque night so long past. In January 1910, I had finished a professional engagement in England and signed a contract for a tour of Australian theatres. A liberal time being allowed for the trip, I determined to make the most of it in the sort of travel which chiefly interests me. So, accompanied by my wife, I drifted pleasantly down the continent and embarked at Marseille on the P&O steamer Malwa bound for Port Said. From that point, I proposed to visit the principal historical localities of Lower Egypt before leaving finally for Australia. The voyage was an agreeable one, and enlivened by many of the amusing incidents which befall a magical performer apart from his work. I had intended, for the sake of quiet travel, to keep my name a secret but I was goaded into betraying myself by a fellow magician 
whose anxiety to astound the passengers with ordinary tricks tempted me to duplicate and exceed his feats in a manner quite destructive of my incognito. I mention this because of its ultimate effect, an effect I should have foreseen before unmasking to a shipload of tourists about to scatter throughout the Nile Valley. What it did was to herald my identity wherever I subsequently went, and deprive my wife and me of all the placid inconspicuousness which we had sought. Traveling to seek curiosities, I was often forced to stand inspection as a sort of curiosity myself. We had come to Egypt in search of the picturesque and mystically impressive, but found little enough when the ship edged up to Port Said and discharged its passengers in small boats. Low dunes of sand, bobbing up in shallow water, and a dreary European small town with nothing of interest save the great Aleppo statue. This made us anxious to get on to something more worth our while. After some discussion, we decided to proceed at once to Cairo and the pyramids, later going to Alexandria for the Australian boat and for whatever Greco-Roman sites that ancient metropolis might present. The railway journey was tolerable enough and consumed only four hours and a half. We saw much of the Suez Canal, whose route we followed as far as Ismailia and later had a taste of old Egypt in our glimpse of the restored freshwater canal of the Middle Empire. Then at last we saw Cairo glimmering through the growing dusk, a winkling constellation in which became a blaze as we halted at the great Gar Central. But once more, disappointment awaited us, for all that we beheld was European, save the costumes and the crowds. A prosaic subway led to a square teeming with carriages, taxicabs, and trolley cars, all gorgeous with electric lights shining on tall buildings, whilst the very theater, where I was vainly requested to play, and which I later attended as a spectator, had recently been renamed American Cosmograph. We stopped at Shepherd's Hotel, reached in a taxi that sped along broad, smartly built-up streets, and amidst the perfect service of it, its restaurant, elevators, and generally Anglo-American luxuries, the mysterious East and immemorial past seemed very far away. The next day, however, precipitated us delightfully into the heart of the Arabian Nights atmosphere, and in the winding ways an exotic skyline of Cairo, the Baghdad of Harun al-Rashid seemed to live again. Guided by our Baydecker, we had struck east past the Esbekia Gardens along the Muski in quest of the native quarter, and were soon in the hands of a glamorous Cicerone, who, notwithstanding later developments, was assuredly a master at his trade. Not until afterward did I see that I should have applied at the hotel for a licensed guide. This man, a shaven, peculiarly hollowed-voiced, 
and relatively cleanly fellow, looked like a pharaoh, and called himself Abdul Grace al-Drogman. He appeared to have much power over others of his kind, though subsequently the police profess not to know him, and to suggest that race is merely a name for any person in authority, while Strogman is obviously no more than a clumsy modification of the word for a leader of tourist parties, Dragoman. Abdul led us among such wonders as we had before only read and dreamed of. Old Cairo is itself a storybook and a dream. Labyrinths of narrow alleys, redolent of aromatic secrets. Arabesque balconies and orioles, nearly meeting above the cobbled streets. Maelstroms of oriental traffic with strange cries, cracking whips, rattling carts, jingling money, and braying donkeys. Kaleidoscopes of polychrome robes, veils, turbans, and tarbushes water carriers and dervishes, dogs and cats, soothsayers and barbers, and over all the whining of blind beggars crouched in alcoves, and the sonorous chanting of musings from minarets limed delicately against a sky of deep, unchanging blue. The roofed, quieter bazaars were hardly less alluring, Spice, perfume, incense beads, rugs, silks, and brass. Old Mahmoud Solomon squats cross-legged amidst his gummy bottles, while chattering youths pour as mustard in the hollowed-out capital of an ancient, classic column. A Roman Corinthian, perhaps from neighboring Heliopolis, Augustus stationed one of his three Egyptian legions. Antiquity begins to mingle with exoticism. And then the mosques and the museum. We saw them all, and tried not to let our Arabian revel succumb to the darker charm of pharaonic Egypt, which the museum's priceless treasures offered. That was to be our climax, and for the present, we concentrated on the medieval Saracenic glories of the caliphs, whose magnificent tomb mosques form a glittering fairy necropolis on the edge of the Arabian desert. At length, Abdul took us along the Sharia Muhammad Ali to the ancient mosque of Sultan Hassan and the tower-flanked Babel Azab, beyond which climbs the steep-walled pass to the mighty citadel that Saladin himself built with the stones of forgotten pyramids. It was sunset when we scaled that cliff, circled the modern mosque of Muhammad Ali, and looked down from the dizzy parapet over mystic Cairo. Mystic Cairo, all golden with its carven domes, its ethereal minarets, and its flaming gardens. Far over the city, towered the great Roman dome of the new museum, and beyond it, across the cryptic yellow Nile that is the mother of eons and dynasties, lurked the menacing sands of the Libyan desert, undolent and iridescent with evil and older arcana. 
the red sun sank low, bringing the relentless chill of Egyptian dusk. And as it stood poised on the world's rim, like that ancient god of Heliopolis, Ray, Harakte, the horizon sun, we saw silhouetted against its vermeil holocaust the blank outlines of the pyramids of Giza, the Paleogen tombs, ever hoary with a thousand years when King Tut mounted his golden throne in distant Thebes. Then we knew that we were done with Saracen Cairo, and that we must taste the deeper mysteries of primal Egypt, the black chem of Ray and Amun, Isis and Osiris. The next morning we visited the pyramids, riding out in a victoria across the island of Chizera with its massive labak trees and the smaller English bridge to the western shore. Down the shore road we drove, between the great rows of Labaks and past the vast zoological gardens to the suburb of Giza, where a new bridge to Cairo proper has since been built. Then, turning inland along the Sharia el-Haram, we crossed a region of glassy canals and shabby native villages. The last, before us loomed the objects of our quest, cleaving the mists of dawn and forming inverted replicas in the roadside pools. Forty centuries, as Napoleon had told his campaigners there, indeed looked down upon us. The road now rose abruptly, till we finally reached our place of transfer between the trolley station and the Mina House Hotel. Abdul Rais, who capably purchased our pyramid tickets, seemed to have an understanding with the crowding and yelling and all of the people who inhabited a squalid mud village some distance away, and pestiferously assailed every traveler, for he kept them very decently at bay, and secured an excellent pair of camels for us, himself mounting a donkey, and assigning the leadership of our animals to a group of men and boys more expensive than useful. The area to be traversed was so small, and camels were hardly needed. But we did not regret adding to our experience this troublesome form of desert navigation. The pyramids stand on a high rock plateau, this group forming next to the northernmost of the series of regal and aristocratic cemeteries built in the neighborhood of the extinct capital Memphis. This lay on the same side of the Nile, somewhat south of Giza, and flourished between 3400 and 2000 B.C. The greatest pyramid, which lies nearest the modern road, was built by King Cheops, or Chofu, about 2800 B.C., and stands more than 450 feet in perpendicular height. In a line southwest from this are successively the second pyramid, built a generation later by King Chephren, and though slightly smaller, looking even larger because set on higher ground, and the radically smaller Third Pyramid of King Mycernes, built around 2700 BC. Near the edge of the plateau, and due east of the Second Pyramid, with a face probably altered to form a colossal portrait of Chephren, its royal restorer, 
stands the monstrous, sphinx-mute, sardonic, and wise, beyond mankind and memory. Minor pyramids and the traces of ruined minor pyramids were found in several places, and the entire plateau is pitted with the tombs of dignitaries of less than royal rank. These later were originally marked by the Mastabas, or stone bench-like structures about the deep burial shafts, as found in other Memphian cemeteries, and exemplified by Perneb's tomb in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. At Giza, however, all such visible things have been swept away by time and pillage, and only the rock-hewn shafts, either sand-filled or cleared out by archaeologists, remain to attest their former existence. Connected with each tomb was a chapel in which priests and relatives offered food and prayer to the hovering Ka, or vital principle of the deceased. The small tombs have their chapels contained in their stone mastabas, or superstructures, but the mortuary chapels of the pyramids, where regal pharaohs lay, were separate temples, each to the east of its corresponding pyramid, and connected by a causeway to a massive gate chapel, or propylon, the edge of the rock plateau. The gate chapel leading to the second pyramid, nearly buried in the drifting sands, yawns subterraneously southeast of the Sphinx. Persistent tradition dubs it as the Temple of the Sphinx, and it may perhaps be rightly called such, if the Sphinx indeed represents the second pyramid's builder, Kephren. There are unpleasant tales of the Sphinx, before Kephren. Whatever its elder features were, the monarch replaced them with his own that men might look at the Colossus without fear. It was in the great Gateway Temple that the life-size diorite statue of Kephren now in the Cairo Museum was found, a statue before which I stood in awe when I beheld it. Whether the entire edifice is now excavated, I am not certain. But in 1910, most of it was below ground, with the entrance heavily barred at night. Germans were now in charge of the work, and the war or other things may have stopped them. I would give much, in view of my experience and of certain Bedouin whisperings, discredited or unknown in Cairo, to know what has developed in connection with a certain well in a transverse gallery where statues of the pharaoh were found in curious juxtaposition, statues of baboons. The road as we traversed it on our camels that morning curved sharply past the wooden police quarters, post office, drugstore and shops on the left, and plunged south and east in a complete bend. It scaled the rock plateau and brought us face to face with the desert under the lee of the Great Pyramid. We rode past Cyclopean masonry, rounding the eastern face, and looking down ahead into a valley of minor pyramids, beyond which the eternal Nile glistened to the east, and the eternal desert shimmered to the west. 
very close loomed the three major pyramids, the greatest, devoid of outer casing and showing its bulk of great stones, but the others retaining here and there the neatly fitted covering, which made them smooth and finished in their day. Presently we descended towards the Sphinx, and sat silent beneath the spell of those terrible, unseeing eyes. On the vast stone beast we faintly discerned the emblem of Re Harakte, for whose image the Sphinx was mistaken in a late dynasty, and though sand covered the tablet between the great paws, we recalled what Tuthmosis IV inscribed thereon, and the dream he had when a prince. It was then that the smile of the Sphinx vaguely displeased us, and made us wonder about the legends of subterranean passages beneath the monstrous creature, leading down, down, to depths none might dare hint at, depths connected with mysteries older than the dynastic Egypt we excavate, and having a sinister relation to the persistence of abnormal, animal-headed gods in the ancient, mylotic pantheon. Then, too, it was I asked myself an idle question, whose hideous significance was not to appear for many an hour. Other tourists now began to overtake us, and we moved on to the sand-choked temple of the Sphinx, fifty yards to the southeast, which I have previously mentioned as the great gate of the causeway to the second pyramid's mortuary chapel on the plateau. Most of it was still underground, and although we dismounted and descended through a modern passageway to its alabaster corridor and pillared hall, I felt that Abdul and the local German attendant had not shown us all that there was to see. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.